How's that for advertising? Try a small group. It's not as bad as you imagine. How many have given blood today? Signing up for a small group is like giving blood through your big toes out the end. How painful would that be? Well, we're about small groups here at TBA, and I want you to know that uh, I'm all about small groups. In fact, most of what I do involves small groups. I get to speak and teach all over the place in different churches, and I wish I could tell you that I'm such a great speaker that every time I get up to speak, people go off and do exactly what I tell them they should do. Doesn't happen. And so I spend the bulk of my time in small group settings because what I have found is it's that across-the-table, eyeball-to-eyeball accountability and encouragement that allows life change to happen. And one of the things that we know happens in small group is that we do Bible study, and Bible study in small group is essential to our spiritual growth. I want you to read that with me. This is the big idea of the day. Here we go. Bible study in, again... Bible study in small groups is essential to our spiritual growth. And that's because I want to spend time in God's Word by myself every day. I read it every day that I can. But there are things that I don't get out of it that someone across the table will get out of it. There are things that people come up with that I would have never thought of. And so small group Bible study for me has been life-changing. And there's an encouragement and an accountability that happens in a small group that simply cannot happen in a large group or by myself. You know, from the very beginning of time, God understood the priority and the importance of small groups. God is a small group. God is the Father, and God is the Son, and God is the Spirit. That's the small group. You know, the verse on your bulletin today says, A three-strand cord is not easily broken. And that number three in the Bible often refers to the Trinity. And if you think of the way a three-stranded cord uh, is interwoven, I think that's a picture for us of what God is like, and he wants us in that same kind of community. God does not exist on his own. He did not create us to exist on our own. But our culture says you are to be a self-made person, and there's nothing wrong with working hard by yourself. But if you're going to grow spiritually, it will happen more often than not in a small group. I want to take you to the New Testament first today, and then we're going to finish up in the Old Testament. And in the Gospel of Mark, we have a segment of chapters. A segment is a group of paragraphs or chapters that deal with pretty much the same topic. And in Mark 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, we have Jesus and his small group. Did you know Jesus had a small group? They're called the disciples. There were 12 of them. In fact, Jesus had a second small group. If you came to the Life of Christ study at all, you know that Peter and James and John were called the inner circle. They got to learn stuff that the other nine did not. But Jesus lived in a small group situation. Now, we've thought about this a little bit. Uh, You know, James and John were the cousins of Jesus, and maybe family's a good idea in your small group. Sometimes it's not. Uh, But I think that around Jesus, there were family members, wives and kids, and there was a lot of noise. I'm imagining... You know, one of the disciples said, you're going to be quiet because you're going to behave because we're going to Uncle Jesus' house. You know, I think there was a lot of that that went on, but the 12 had to get alone and learn from Jesus things that he wanted to impart to them. And so beginning in Mark chapter 3, Jesus goes from the large group to the small group. Up until the end of Mark 3, Jesus is ministering to the multitudes. And then in Mark chapter 3, we have the watershed event in the life of Christ. He is rejected 
by the Jewish leadership for getting his power from Satan. Remember that sign in the walkthrough? And it used to be back in the day that we saw then Jesus would focus on the faithful. He changed his whole ministry in Mark 4 from ministering with miracles and sermons to ministering to the twelve who are then going to carry out the ministry once he has been rejected by the Jewish leadership. Mark 3, Jesus is rejected by the leaders of Israel. And beginning in Mark 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, he begins to equip the twelve for his imminent departure. In Mark chapter 4, after he's rejected by the Jewish leaders, he teaches in parables all day long. Mark 4 is about the sower. The sower goes out to sow. It's about the parable of the mustard seed. It's about the seed that grows up overnight. Mark has in it the parable of the wheat and the tares, another an agricultural parable. And after every parable, Jesus would say, He that has ears to hear, let him what? Hear. And then at the end of Mark 4, he takes his small group and he puts them in a boat. And he says to them in Mark 4:35, Let us go to the other side, meaning the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then if you know the story, it's dark and a storm comes up. And they are fishermen trying to cross the lake on their own power, and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. You see, having been teaching them all day in parables, he now tests them. And that is how God grows us. He teaches us, and then he tests us. Jesus does this. God does it in the Old Testament as well. He teaches parable, parable, parable. Now here's the test, how they do. storm comes up, and they cry out, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? They failed the test, didn't they? By the way, are you guys ready for tests? School starts tomorrow for most of you. Hooray! Let me just share with you that the most important people in your school life will be the people you hang out with during the first and second week and become good friends with. They will be your small group. They will encourage you. They will be accountable to you. I've been in school so long I was educated beyond my intelligence. I went to school 21 years. Think about that. And the guys that I'm closest to are guys that we went through the wars together and getting to school together. You want to surround yourself with good people, people who will encourage you in your faith, who will encourage you in your studies, who will encourage you to be the kind of person you want to be. So it's very important, parents, that your kids are hanging out with the good, good people the first couple of weeks of school. Those are the bonding times when everybody's in trauma time together. Jesus understood that. So Mark chapter 5, they failed the test. He begins a series of miracles. He heals a man with leprosy. He heals a man who comes down the roof. He he heals Peter's mother-in-law. All of these miracles are designed to teach the disciples that he is worthy of their faith. And so chapter 6 is a big miracle. Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know of all the miracles Jesus does, only one is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Mark 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. There were 5,000 men, and they each had one wife and 2.4 children. There were a multitude of people. But the point of the miracle wasn't that Jesus could take the five loaves and the two fishes and multiply it. The point of the miracle was for the 12 disciples in his small group to be involved in the ministry. He would break the bread and give it to them, and then they would disseminate it among the crowd. I'm sure, knowing the disciples a little bit, that when they first got out with their bowl of bread, they said the first time, don't take much. And then it came back empty, and they went back to Jesus, and he's still breaking off bread. Okay, take a little. And I'm sure about the fourth trip, you know, it's like, take all you want. They picked up 12 baskets full of the leftovers, and Jesus is teaching again. 
Now guess what happens after he teaches? After there's teaching, there's testing. And so at the end of Mark chapter 6, he puts them in the boat again. They, they did a lot of learning out in a boat. And these are fishermen. And they're, they're struggling to get across the boat. And it's the middle of the night and Jesus isn't asleep on the boat. He's nowhere to be seen except here he comes walking on the water. They thought he was a ghost. Ah! Remember the story? You know, in Jewish theology, it was the angel of death that would come and take you away when you died to hell. So it's a pretty scary deal. They think Jesus is a ghost. And then Peter says his deal with Jesus, he walks on the water and they get in the boat and then Jesus says, peace be still, and the water goes, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So he's teaching and he's testing, they failed. He's teaching and he's tested testing they feel then he takes them out of israel and in chapter 7 he does a bunch of miracles in the gentile territory north of galilee he heals the syrophoenician woman he heals the daughter the daughter of jairus he heals the woman who had the hemorrhage he's doing all these miracles again to show his disciples he will protect them he will provide for them he will use them in ministry and then he feeds four thousand gentiles the five thousand were jews in Mark chapter 8, he feeds 4,000 Gentiles. And this time, they take the loaves and the fishes, and I'm hoping they're learning. Because at the end of that event, they have seven baskets full of leftovers. And guess what's coming next? The big test. And the big test happens in Mark chapter 8, along the way to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in the north. Way up here, here's the Sea of Galilee where the storms would have taken place. This is 14 miles long by 7 miles wide. So you're dealing with maybe 20 miles north. This is up in the Golan Heights. All this is mountain. Way up here is a mountain called Mount Hermon. It's 8,500 feet high. It has snow. They ski there today. Okay. So Jesus is on the way to Caesarea Philippi, and he comes to this place that is a cliff where the city existed, and in the cliff is a cave, and out of the cave gushes forth one of the three freshwater streams that are the sources for the Sea of Galilee's fresh water. It's the only fresh water in Israel. Now this is a pretty cool place, because the water literally pours out of the rock. Now notice, on that rock, and by the way, this is all, you can see a lot of this is caved in over the years, but there are temples and edifices carved into these buildings these were dedicated to every kind of god and goddess in history the babylonian gods are there the uh the, the greek gods are there my favorite is the roman god pan have you heard of pan not peter pan but the roman god pan and pan was one of the gods of the underworld and he supposedly would come up out of this cave at night and he would dance himself through the through the forest which is in the north there's a lot of forest and he would jump out of the woods in front of your house your horse your house your horse, and your horse would panic. That's where we get the word panic from. Oh. So all the gods of history are worshipped there, and along the way, Jesus gives his disciples in his small group a test. It says Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? which is in reality the most important test you can ever take, by the way. This is a pass-fail exam. You either get a hundred or a zero. You with me? There's only one answer to this question. Now, he's been with his men for months, teaching and testing, 
and teaching and testing, miracles and parables, teaching and testing. Here's the ultimate exam. It comes in a small group. They learn the answer in a small group. What is the answer to this question? Well, we read this. They told him, Jesus, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been beheaded, and then some say he's come back from the dead and that you're him. Some say you're Elijah. Elijah is in the Old Testament the forerunner to the coming of the Messiah. The last uh, page of the Old Testament says Elijah will come before the Messiah comes. And some say you're him. Some say you're one of the prophets because you do all these miraculous things. But he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And the Greek language is wonderful here. He says, but you, who do you say that I am? Here's who they say that I am. You, who do you say that I am? And then Peter steps it up here, having been in small group for some time now, and he passes the test. He continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Matthew adds, I love Matthew here, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. You're the one God that's greater than all these gods being worshipped here in this mountain. And Peter passes that test. He passed the test because of what he had learned in small group. See, I believe there are things you learn in small group that you don't learn in any other place. Because as we study the scriptures together, we come up with ways to encourage each other to come up with new information. And you know, I'll study the same passage in ten different small groups, and we're still coming up with new stuff. Because the scriptures are alive, and the way God uses it in your heart is a little different than the way God's going to use it in my heart. And that's why small groups are essential to growing your faith. We were not made to live life alone. We are not islands. In the old words of the Simon and Garfunkel song, you don't know who that is, but Google it. (laughs) I am not a rock. I am not an island. I'm to be living my life in community with other followers of Christ, holding each other accountable and encouraging each other to grow. Now, as that happens, you see, here's the progression. We start with the basics. He's teaching and then testing and then teaching and then testing. And this is really the climactic event of all of Mark's gospel here at the end of chapter 8. And it comes with the question, who do you say that I am? And the answer is, you are the Christ. It took Peter a while to come to that. And it took his small group of disciples to get him to that. And that was Jesus who was the perfect small group leader. That's the benefit of small groups. Because, you see, when you get to small group study, some things happen. Number one, you get to ask questions. You know, I don't stop in the middle of my sermon and say, oh, would you, do you have any questions? Generally, I'm not going to have time to do that on a Sunday morning. I might, but generally, no. The smaller the group, the more the questions are. And, frankly, I would much rather deal with questions and help you answer your questions than just give you my stuff. So when you have questions, it's okay. You can call me. That's why I put my contact information up. You can email me. You can reach me via Twitter. If you really need the answer to a question, contact my wife. She knows everything. (laughs) But we're going to create in in the process of of doing a sermon-based small group study that's going to allow you to ask questions of your small group. And we're going to provide some of those questions for you. Another thing is you're going to get in a small group to to discuss really significant issues. The most important is, is Jesus really the Christ, the Son of the living God? 
But you know, just as, just as important are questions like, is the Bible true? You know, we teach from the Bible every Sunday. How do we know that's a true book? Or is Jesus the only way to heaven? You live in a world, especially our kids do, that says, you know, the only uh, absolute is that there are no absolutes. And everybody has their own truth. And it's too narrow to say that your way is the only way, no matter what your way is. And to be a follower of Christ in this day and age is really, really hard. And so you've got to be able to deal with that and be encouraged by other believers in answering those kinds of questions. What does the Bible say about this? Is the Bible true about this? Is Jesus really who he claimed to be? But there are other questions. You know, I have a kid who is going through this. Well, hopefully there will be somebody in your small group that has gone through that. When you're going through it, you're going to go, oh, I don't have an answer. But it's great, isn't it, to have somebody who's been through that and you say, boom. Or I've got an illness. You know, who do you use for this? What doctor do you see? Or uh, what counselor do you, do, you, do you get an appointment with? Or what's going on in Lakeland that can help me with X or Y or Z? Those are things that happen in small group that don't happen in big group. So we live life together in a small group. It's a very important and vital thing, and I think God understands that. Jesus certainly did in the New Testament. The bulk of his ministry takes place in the setting of small group. And then people get encouraged. People get encouraged. I walk away from my small group, even if it's been a heavy time, I know I'm in it together with my guys, with my people, with my other couples. We lost a great talent this week, Robin Williams took his own life. And whatever else you believe about Robin Williams, I think you could agree that he, that he was gifted. But I think he lived his life alone. And I believe that if he had been a part of a small group, somebody would have held him accountable or been able to encourage him through what has been a very difficult life in some ways. You know, if you battle depression at all, and I understand about depression, I've struggled with it, you begin to think you're the only one that's ever felt this way, and it begins to become like a dark cloud in your life, and you feel like there's no hope. Well, if you'll get to small group, you understand that my life is not as bad as I might think it is. You know, I meet with mostly men in my small groups, but it's always funny because when guys complain about their wives, other guys get encouraged. It's like, my wife's not so bad. (laughs) And you women do the same, don't tell me. My wife comes home from small group and says, you know, I'm glad I'm married to you. you let me tell you what so-and-so's husband does. <laughs> and you, you're, bad, you're bad about it too, I know. Or let me tell you what such and such is up to. So we get encouraged because we know we're in this together. That's why we do small group, to be in community. Now there's a passage that is, uh, is quoted in, in Ecclesiastes I'm going to get to, but you know, maybe you're still that person that says, I'm not going to be a part of small group. I'm not going to be, a small group just doesn't, doesn't work for me. And I want to give you some, some funny things that have happened over the years. These are statements made about events which later were not quite true. This verse is by Albert Einstein. Have you heard of him? He says, there is not the slightest indication that nuclear energy would ever be obtainable. It would mean that the atom would have to be shattered at will. Albert Einstein. I wonder how he'd feel today knowing what we know about smashing atoms at will. This is another kind of a funny one. 1962, I was 12 years old, and the Beatles, the Beatles were just getting known, and Decca Records sent out a note saying, we don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. I'm sure that our worship team would be happy to know that. 
you know, 40 years later. Here's another one. The phone. The telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us, quote, by Western Union. Remember what happened to Western Union. They went out of business. I'm guessing there are warehouses full of slide rules in the world and buggy whips and telegraph machines because people didn't foresee how to get through the future. And they said, this will never work. Small groups will never work. Thomas Watson, the chairman of IBM in 1943, made this incredible statement. I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. Think about that. He's the chairman of IBM. We've got more, more than five computers in that row. What would, where would we be without computers in our lives? This is a kind of a funny one, too. This is Napoleon Bonaparte. He says, um, he says, how, sir, would you make a ship sail against the wind and currents by lighting a bonfire under her deck? I pray you excuse me. I have not the time to listen to such nonsense. He's dead. He lost. <laughs> he, had short, he had Napoleon's disease. And then this one blows me away because this is the anniversary of the, uh, of the moonwalk, which happened in 1969, I think it was that, 45 years ago? I remember it vividly, watching it on the little black and white TV. A rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. New York Times, 1936. And then there are those, most of us men, who will say, I don't need to be in a small group. I would suggest that 10 years from now you will wish you had never said that if you'll take the time to invest in a small group. And here is why. There's an Old Testament passage written by a wonderful old man by the name of Solomon. Say Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man in the history of the world. And he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. Say Ecclesiastes. And it starts out with the phrase, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity is the Hebrew word for empty. He's looked at all these things in life and he says it's just vanity. Vanity is like a soap bubble. You know, my wife is the grandma of the year, and we have soap bubbles by the gallon, and we get all sorts of hoops and rings, and we can blow little bubbles, we can blow big bubbles, we can make bubbles in shapes. But the thing about bubbles is, especially little kids, is when they get a beautiful bubble, what do they want to do? Touch it. And as soon as you go to put your finger on the bubble, it blows up, and life is like that. So Solomon says, you know, I tried beauty, and I sought after beautiful women, and I realized that was vanity. And I tried money, and I became the wealthiest man in the world, and I realized that was vanity. And I tried wisdom, and I gained all the wisdom in the world, and I found that was vanity. And he observes a man who's living life without a small group. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it says, There was a certain man without a small group. That's without a dependent means. There was a certain man without a dependent having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? He looked at the American businessman of today who's overworking and overpaid and oversaving and collecting and collecting and collecting, and he's all by himself. At the end of the day, he's not enjoying what he's doing because he's not sharing it with anybody. And he's gaining and he's gaining. You know, one of the questions you get to answer is small group, in small group, is how much is enough? Very important question of life. And it's so helpful to have people around 
to help discuss those kinds of questions. But here's a guy, he gets to the end of his life and he never asks, and why am I doing this? Now work is good, and money is fine, we ought to enjoy the fruits of our labor, but at the end of your life, if it's all about you, and you're not able to share the benefits of your work with anyone, the conclusion is this too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. The word grievous task in the NIV is translated miserable business. It's the word used in Job when he's covered with painful boils. At the end of life, if you've got nobody to share your life with, it's like malignant boils. I don't want my life to be that way. I don't want to end up alone. I want to end up in community with people. I want to end up with my family and my friends and my brothers and my sisters in Christ together going across the finish line. That's how God created us. And so Solomon goes from the one individual to the two men. He says two, literally two men, are better than one. I've always said that about me because my name is Ed. And you know what they say, two Eds are better than one. Thank you for your smirking. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. See, two are better than one, first of all, when it comes to work. Two workers can get done together more than one can. And even if you split the profits, you generally get more done with a partner than you do without a partner. Now, it doesn't mean you can't work without a partner. But if you're not surrounded with people in your work that you care about and that care about you, at the end of the day, it's miserable. There's an encouragement to working hard at a task with a partner that you don't get if you don't have a partner. And so in our work, we need to be surrounded with people who care about us. Two are better than one. And, verse 10, if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. You know, you're talking about Solomon, who lived in Israel. Israel is desert. It's an extreme climate. And if you're walking around, especially after dusk, The pathways are steep. You might fall off the cliff. You might trip on a rock. You might fall into a pit. And if you're by yourself and you fall into a pit in this life, don't you need a helping hand of somebody you know loves about you to help you up out of the pit? So it's not just about our work. It's about our walk. Third, it's about keeping warm. Verse 11, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? See, again, in in Israel, it's high desert country. It's beautiful in the day, but it's cold in the desert at night. There's no humidity there. And so it can be 100 degrees in the day and 45 at night. I've been in the desert at night when it's just, you have to warm up, you have to put jackets on. And if you're by yourself in the desert, you're in a dangerous place. You could freeze to death. But if you have a friend, you can cover yourself up with one blanket and be warm enough to get through the night. If you don't have a friend, you've got you to gotta bring extra blankets. And even that's a more, a more, more of a danger in the desert. It, it heavy, makes you have a heavier burden. So you need people around you when it comes to your work and your walk and to keep warm. And then lastly, there's one last W. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. In the desert, around Israel, at night, people are on their way to and from Jerusalem carrying with them their treasures. So you would never travel by yourself. You would always need a friend who had your back. See, Because you could get robbed. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? He was beat up because he was alone. And they would take everything you owned because you didn't have 
safes and banks. You carried what you owned with you. And so in terms of watching out for each other, two are better than one. See, Solomon starts with a one, and then he goes to the two, and then as a good Hebrew poet, he goes to the three. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I've got, I raised four sons, but now I've got ten grandchildren, and six of them are girls. And one of the things I have learned is how to braid hair. I can't do a French braid yet. I'm going to need some help with that, ladies, because my wife doesn't know how to do it. But I I can take three strands of my granddaughter's hair, and I can make a braid. And it's not pretty, but I'll tell you what, when we get that braid in place, that's a a three-strand cord. It's rock solid. It's not going anywhere. And that's what Solomon's picture is. One is not good, two is better, but three is even better. And really, by logical calculation, the more the merrier. It's good to have a friend. It's even better to have two. It's great to be surrounded by people who love you. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And again, in the ancient world, the number three is a wonderful number. It's the number of the Trinity. You know, in God's small group, there are three persons, yet there's a oneness there that cannot be torn apart. So the question as we wrap this up is, are you willing to be a part of sharing your life? Take some courage, take some faith. It takes some initiative to say, yeah, I want to do life with other people. I'm tired of doing it on my own. And and you may need more than one small group. You know, there are things I will share with with guys that I wouldn't share with women present. It's okay. I have different small groups for different things. And sometimes a small group can get too big. You know, there, there comes a time when maybe, maybe we've got six or seven couples in our small group. We need to split in half and have two or four. That's up to you. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying that small groups are essential to growing you in your faith. And a big part of that is how you understand the Scriptures. Would you pray with me as we wrap this up? Father, we love you. We thank you the, for the fact that you understand community from the very beginning of time you are three in one and we're thankful that a three strand cord is not torn apart and we pray you'd surround each one here with people who love them and intertwine their lives with them and grow with them and hold us accountable and hold us as encouragers one to another two are better than one but a three strand cord is not quickly torn apart. Thank you, Father, that you encourage us to live life not by ourselves, but in community with your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand together and continue in worship.